Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak your word to us, that we would hear your word, that it would bear fruit in our lives all to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And as I announced at the beginning, if you've got kids that you'd like to have participate in Children's Church, now is your chance. A little girl attended a wedding for the first time. And she enjoyed seeing all the pretty colors and the pretty dresses. And then she saw the bride. And the girl whispered to her mother, Why is the bride dressed in white? And her mother, perhaps choosing to skip a conversation with a young child about purity, replied, Because white is the color of happiness, and today is the happiest day of her life. And the girl thought for a moment and then said, So why is the groom wearing black? (laughs) So last week we looked at the Bible's teaching, especially in the New Testament, about singleness. We saw that in Christ the single life is prophetic. It points towards what is to come in the new age. And we also saw that in Christ the single life is esteemed. Jesus himself elevates the single life as an especially valued uh, state that the church needs. And so today we look at the other side of that discussion, marriage. If last week we sought to redeem singleness, today our goal will be to redeem marriage. Looking together at some of the common views that our culture holds about marriage, helping to identify those, but then also seeking to uh, hear and submit ourselves to what God says about marriage in the Bible. I want to give you a couple statistics just to put some of this in perspective. Now, just hear me very clearly. I am not upholding 1960s marriage in the United States as some ideal, but I think that these statistics will help show some of the difference that's taken place during our lifetime, just over the last 60 years or so. So in 1960, in the United States, the divorce rate was about 25%. Today it's twice that. In 1960, in our country, 75% of adults were married. Today it's actually less than 50%. In 1960, the percentage of people who were cohabitating, living together without being married, the percentage of people that were doing that in 1960 was negligible. Today, 25% of women aged 25 to 40, so a quarter of the women in that age bracket, are cohabitating with a partner. Half of all women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s in our country, will live with a partner during those decades. Half of women, 20s, 30s, and 40s, will at one time live with a partner they're not married to. Men are no better, that's just the women in those statistics. As I said, I'm not upholding 1960s marriage in the United States as the ideal, but just noting some of the dramatic shifts that have taken place in just under 60 years. 
And so what I want to do first is help identify aspects of our current culture's views on marriage and then sort of shift that into just two things we see in Scripture. So a couple things that we see just in our culture about marriage. And one is what uh, I have heard referred to as me marriage. Marriage is about making me happy. As a woman named Tara Parker Pope wrote in the New York Times earlier this decade, she said, quote, marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. It's about achieving my goals. It's about reaching my dreams. It's about enjoying my sexual desires. It's about me and finding someone who will make me happy. I remember in a previous ministry context, a man sitting down in my office with me, a man following an affair that he had had with a coworker, told me that he knew God did not want him to work things out with his wife because, quote, God would want me to be happy. It's about me. Now, I would say related to that, but going beyond is this idea that in marriage, part of the way that we make this about me is that our job in marriage is to find our perfectly compatible soulmate. And so marriage is a bit like a worldwide Where's Waldo page looking to find the right one that's made just especially for us. So I remember once hearing an older woman trying to encourage a younger unmarried woman who really wanted to marry. And the older married woman said to her, take your time. I married someone young, but then I realized that he was the wrong man. We divorced, and I found the right man. And the assumption being that there is just one right person out there for each of us, and what we have to do is just find our soulmate. And if we realize that the person we're married to isn't the perfect, compatible soulmate for us, the only appropriate thing for us to do is to divorce and find the right person. But this fails to recognize our fallenness as sinners. And it is also unbiblical. A philosopher named Stanley Hauerwas wrote something a number of years ago which... Uh, how we, shall we say, caused a bit of a stir, but I think if we understand what he means, I think he's absolutely right. So I'm going to read part of what he wrote because he said it better than I can. He said this, The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that, and here's the money quote, it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if at first we do marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is, Learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. 
There is not just one right person out there made especially for each of us. I would suggest that in life there are lots of equally good paths at various times that we can make very appropriate decisions to go one way or another about a variety of things. And if you happen to make one decision that leads you this way instead of that way, you would never meet the perfectly compatible soulmate that was down this road. I would suggest that that would be a terrifyingly enslaving world to live in. But there is not just one right person out there for us. I would say that there probably throughout our lives, there may very well be multiple people that one could marry, or there may be none. But if you do marry, then that one is supposed to become the one. Not because, whew, you found him, but because when you marry that person, he or she becomes the one that we are then called to love. Now, related to that, finding the perfectly compatible soulmate, is the desire which is becoming more and more common in our culture, is the desire for sexual compatibility. This is so widely accepted, especially among the younger generations, that I have heard with my own ears a teenage girl say to another teenage girl, well, you need to go sleep with him to know if you could ever marry him. It is so widely, it's becoming so widely accepted that the best way to identify that kind of compatibility is to then live together to see if it works out. And then you can decide if you want to stay together. Another view in our culture is the desire to find someone who will love me just the way I am, meaning someone who thinks I'm so great that they won't want to change me. Now, if you, marry, if you want to marry someone who won't in any way change you, you pretty much have to find someone who thinks you're basically perfect in every way just as you are. But if you marry someone who thinks you're perfect in every way, the minute you marry them, they will discover that you're not. And they will want to change you. Because we're broken. And we still carry the marks of sin. We are not perfect. And then, speaking to a church, Christians, if you take all of that and embrace the culture's ideas on marriage, and then just take all that, and then say we want Christian marriage, meaning we just add on top of that, I want to marry a Christian, you will never find anyone to marry. Because that person doesn't exist. And then maybe you think if you found them, and then you discover that they change, or you change, and if you accept this culture's view on marriage, when that happens, when you change or that person changes, you'll be convinced you married the wrong person, and you'll need to try again. But because these are some of the common views in our culture, this is sort of what's in the water, if you will, about marriage in our culture, but I believe that we can do better, and that marriage can be redeemed by hearing what God has taught us about his invention of marriage what he has taught us about its essence and its purpose in scripture so briefly i want to give you two things about marriage from a biblical view there could be plenty more we do not have to talk about everything in every sermon but here's two things about marriage trying to redeem marriage for our culture and the first is this marriage is a covenant covenant. Now, we don't use that word very often anymore, and even in the church, basically the only time we ever use that word is about marriage. So it's in many ways lost its 
meaning because we don't really understand what it means. But a covenant is a firm and lasting legal promise that cannot be easily broken without massive consequences. And before we go farther, I just want to say I know those that there are quite a few in this room that have experienced when that uh, legal binding uh, situation breaks in divorce. And you know that there are massive consequences. You know the pain of that. And I'm not belittling that at all. But a covenant is a firm and lasting legal promise that can't be easily broken without those sorts of massive consequences. And when it comes to marriage, it's an incredible combination of both law, it's legal, and love. And it actually becomes more emotionally intense, more significant, because it's legal. It's only when it's legal, when it's firm, that I can let down my guard, that I can open myself up, that I can truly be myself. Because up until it's legal, we're really just in the mode of marketing and promotion. But once it's legal and final, I can be free to love, and I can be free, free to allow myself to be fully open. And there is tremendous freedom in marriage as a covenant relationship. I can experience freedom because I know that I am committed to my wife, Tracy, and she's committed to me. I'm not wondering if she'll still love me when she sees my flaws. I know she's going to see them. I can let her see them. And when she does see them, and I'm especially obnoxious, I just remind her that she is stuck with me. And then she often reminds me with a twinkle in her eye that she could easily poison me without any trouble and no one would question her motives in doing so. But the fact is that this combination of both law and love makes marriage emotionally safe and intense. It makes it more so, not less so. Because marriage is a covenant together. And the second part about marriage is this. Marriage points to Jesus. Marriage points to Jesus. I tell people every time I help prepare people for marriage, I tell them this in advance, and then I say it to them right there in the front during their wedding. I tell them that their wedding service, their marriage, is not primarily about them at all. Their marriage... Your marriage is about Jesus. In both of our readings from, our reading from Hosea in the Old Testament and Revelation 21 in the New Testament, we are told that in the culmination of all things, there is a marriage. A marriage between God and his people. And the point is that all human marriage is an arrow. It's a pointer towards that final relationship. Marriage between husband and wife is the closest thing we have to that final consummation of all things when our union with God in Christ will be so complete that it's described as a marriage with us as the bride of the Lamb, as it says in Revelation 21. As it says in Revelation 21, 9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then down comes the holy city of God filled with God's people. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5.31, Paul writes, quoting Genesis chapter 2, 
Paul writes this, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he immediately writes this, he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so this beautiful thing called marriage, when two strangers of different genders, the ways that man and woman both mesh together, but are also so different that it makes it hard that we have to work it out together, that relationship is primarily about Jesus and his church. And so the human mystery of two becoming one at the deepest level is a sign pointing to Jesus and his bride, the church. In various ways, the marriage relationship between husband and wife preaches the gospel of Jesus. The marriage relationship, if you're, if you're married, your marriage, is designed by God to be a concrete sermon on the love of God. Your marriage is a declaration to your spouse, to your children, to your family, to your church. It's a declaration of what God's love looks like. That's what marriage is about. And if we go into marriage primarily looking to get our own needs met, our own desires fulfilled, then we never, probably never reach the point of proclaiming the gospel through our marriage. But if we focus on declaring the goodness of God in Christ through our marriage, if we focus on that, we find that there is tremendous joy and fulfillment. If we seek personal fulfillment first, we usually don't find it. But if we seek the real purpose of marriage, we seek that first, we often then find deep fulfillment in it. And it's not too late to start. Now you may be, for those that are married, you may be in a very happy marriage, or you might not. But it's not too late to begin acknowledging that your marriage is about pointing your spouse, your children, your church to Jesus. The way you love him, the way you love her, should give a concrete example of what Jesus' love for the church looks like. Your spouse should get a better picture, a better experience of Jesus' love by being married to you than they would have had they not married you. Now, that's an immense responsibility for husbands and wives, but that is the point, and it is not too late to start. So to you who are not married, first of all, you don't need to marry. Listen to last week's sermon for that. But many of you will, and that's great. And for those who wish to marry, and who one day will marry, the best advice I can give you is to become totally enthralled with Jesus. Seek Him with every fiber of your being, so if and when you later do marry, you will be that much more prepared to preach the gospel of Jesus in your marriage. Your calling now, as an unmarried person, is to learn to display those aspects of the good news of Jesus that shine more clearly through singleness than through marriage. And if you do later marry, you will be better prepared, you will be well prepared to display those truths of the gospel that shine more clearly through marriage than through singleness. Only marry those who will be true partners in the gospel. 
who will consciously join you in proclaiming the truth of God in Christ through your union together. Only marry those who will help show you and show the world the goodness of Jesus displayed on the cross. To those who are married, may today be a day when you commit again to loving Him, to loving her, by putting their needs above your own, following the example of Jesus who laid down His life for His spouse, the church, knowing deep in your soul that when we do so, we are in our small way preaching the gospel of Jesus, who left the glory of heaven to become one of us in order to lay down his life for us. May the way that you love your spouse declare that truth of Jesus again. Forgive. Consciously, intentionally, tenaciously, gently forgive. When he does that thing again that makes you so mad, you're laughing. When she says that thing again that hurts so much, remember the way that Christ forgave you. But you say, it was inexcusable I know. That's why forgiveness is what is needed. If it were excusable and understandable, then understanding is what would be needed. But precisely because what he or she did is inexcusable is exactly why forgiveness is needed. Our sin is inexcusable, which is why God provided the way that we could be forgiven, not just excused. Forgiven, washed, sin paid for, given new life in Christ. Forgiven. And our job in marriage is to display that forgiveness to our spouse. And so when your marriage reminds us again that he or she is still a sinner, let us with grace take up our calling to preach the gospel of Jesus in the way that we lovingly forgive and reconcile. Marriage is a God-given, God-designed way for us as Christians to declare and display the love of God for us. Our spouse should get a better glimpse of Jesus' love by being married to us than they would have if they hadn't. And so let us, as followers of Christ, Let us recommit to using our marriage to be the pointer that it is. To point our spouse, our family, and the world to the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us to set us free and to draw us to himself in love. Amen.